Chapter Eight of the Red Planet. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Diana Moylinger. The Red Planet by William J. Locke. Chapter Eight. My house, as I have already mentioned, is situated at the extreme end of the town on the main road, already called the Rodon Road, which is an extension of the High Street. It stands a little way back to allow room for a semicircular drive, at each end of which is a broad gate. The semicircle encloses a smooth-shaven lawn, of which I am vastly proud. In the squandrels by the side of the house there are laburnums and lilacs and laurels. From gate to gate stretch iron railings, planned in a low stone parapet, and unencumbered with vegetation, so that the view from road to lawn and from lawn to road is unrestricted. Thus I can take my position on my lawn near the railings, and greet all passers-by. It was a lovely May morning. My laburnums and lilacs were in flower. On the other side of the way, the hedge of white thorns screening the grounds of a large preparatory school was in a flower also, and deliciously scented the air. I set in my accustomed spot a table with writing materials, tobacco, and books by my side and a mass of newspapers at my feet. There was going to be a coalition government. Great statesmen were going to forget that there was such a thing as party politics, except in the distribution of minor offices, when the claims of good and faithful jackals on either side would have to be considered. And my heart grew sick within me, and I longed for a man to arise, who, with a snap of his strong fingers, would snuff out the little parish-bomb folk who have misruled England this many a year with their limited vision and sordid aspirations, and would take the great, unshakable, triumphant command of a mighty empire, passionately yearning to do his bidding. I could read no more newspapers. They disgusted me. One faction seemed doggedly opposed to any proposition for the amelioration of the present disastrous state of affairs. The salvation of racket political theories loomed far more important in their darkened minds than the salvation, by hook or crook, for the British Empire. The other faction, more patriotic in theory, crowded out stinking fish, and by scurrilous overstatement defeated their own ends. In the general ignoble screech the pronouncements of the one or two dignified and thoughtful London newspapers passed unheeded. I drew what comfort I could from the sight of the continually passing troops a platoon of the musketry training, a battalion, brown and dusty, on a route march with full equipment, whistling tipperary, sections of an army service train cursing good-humouredly at their mules, a battery of artillery thundering along at a clean, rhythmical trot which, considering what they were like in their slovenly jogging and bumping three months ago, afforded me prodigious pleasure. On the passing of these last mentioned, I felt inclined to clap my hands, and generally proclaim my appreciation. Indeed, I did arrest a fresh-faced subaltern bringing up the rear of the battery, who, having acquaintance with me, saluted, and I shouted, They are magnificent! He reared up his horse, and flushed with pleasure. We've done our best, sir, said he. We had news last week that we should be sent out quite soon and that has buckled them up enormously. He saluted again and rode off, and my heart went with him. What a joy it would be to clatter down a road once again with the guns. And other people passed. Tonsfolk, who gave me a kindly, 
morning major and went on and others who paused a while and gave me the gossip of the day and presently young randall holmes went by on a motor bicycle he caught sight of me disappeared and then suddenly reappeared wheeling his machine he rested it by the curb of the sidewalk and approached the railings he was within a yard of me would you let me speak to you for half a minute major certainly said i come in he swung through the gate and crossed the lawn you said very hard things to me some time ago i did said i and i don't think they were undeserved up to a certain point i agree with you he replied he looked extraordinarily robust and athletic in his canvas kit why should he be tearing about aimlessly on a motor bicycle this may morning when he ought to be in france i wish you agreed with me all along the line said i he found a little iron garden seat and sat down by my side i don't want to enter into controversial questions he said confound him he might have been fifty instead of four-and-twenty controversial questions his assured young oxford voice irritated me what do you want to enter into i asked a question of honour he answered calmly i have been wanting to speak to you but i didn't like to passing by you just now i made a sudden resolution you have thought badly of me on account of my attitude towards philip gedge i want to tell you that you are quite right my attitude was illogical and absurd you have discovered said i that she is not the inspiration you thought she was and like an honest man have decided to let her alone on the contrary said he i'd give the eyes out of my head to marry her why he met my gaze very frankly for the simple reason major meredith that i love her all this natural matter-of-fact simplicity coming from so artificial a product of balliol as randall holmes was a bit upsetting after a pause i said if that is so why don't you marry her she'll have nothing to do with me have you asked her i have in writing there's no mistake about it i'm in earnest i'm exceedingly glad to hear it said i and i was an honest lover i can understand and a don juan i can understand but a tepid philanderer has always made my toes tingle and i was glad too to hear that little phyllis gedge had so much dignity and common sense not many small builders daughters would have sent packing a brilliant young man like randall holmes especially if they happened to be in love with him as i did not particularly wish to be the confidant of this lovelorn shepherd i said nothing more randall lit a cigarette i hope i'm not boring you he said not a bit well what complicates the matter is that her father the most infernal swine unhung i started remembering what betty had told me i thought said i that you were fast friends who told you so he asked all the birds in wellingsford i did go to see him now and then he admitted i thought he was much maligned a man with sincere opinions even though they are wrong is deserving of some respect especially when the expression of them involves considerable courage and sacrifice i wanted to get to the bottom of his point of view 
if you use such a metaphor in the Albemarle, I interrupted, I am afraid you would be sacrificed by your friends. He had the grace to laugh. You know what I mean. And did you get to the bottom of it? I think so. And what did you find? Crass ignorance and malevolent hatred of anyone better born, better educated, better off, better dressed, better spoken than himself. Still, said I, a human being can have those disabilities, and yet not deserve to be qualified as the most infernal swine unhung. That's a different matter, said he, unbuttoning his canvas jacket, for the morning was warm. I can talk patiently to a fool. To be able to do so is an elementary equipment for the life among men and women. Why the deuce, thought I, wasn't he expanding his precious acquirement on a platoon of agricultural recruits? The officer who suffers such gladly has his name inscribed in the golden legend, unfortunately unpublished, of the British Army. But when it comes, he went on, to low-down lying knavery, then I'm done. I don't know how to tackle it. All I can do is to get out of the nice way. I found Gedge to be a beast, and I'm very honorably in love with Gedge's daughter, and I've asked her to marry me. I attach some value, Major, to your opinion of me, and I want you to know these two facts. I again express my gratification at learning his honorable intentions towards Phyllis, and I commended his discovery of Gedge's fundamental turpitude. I cannot say that I was cordial. At this period, the unmilitary youth of England were not affectionately coddled by their friends. Still, I was curious to see whether Gedge's depravity extended beyond a purely political scope. I questioned my young visitor. Oh, it's nothing to do with abstract opinions, said he, thinning away the butt-end of his cigarette, and nothing to do with treason or anything of that kind. He has got hold of a horrible story, told me all about it when he was foully drunk. That in itself would have made me break with him, for I loathe drunken men. And gloats over the fact that he is holding it over somebody's head. Oh, a ghastly story! I bent my brows on him. Anything to do with South Africa? South Africa? No. Why? The puzzled look on his face showed that I was entirely on the wrong track. I was disappointed at the faultiness of my acumen. You see, I argued thus. Gedge goes off on a mysterious jaunt with Boyce. Boyce retreats precipitately to London. Gedge, in his cups, tells a horrible scandal with a suggestion of blackmail to Randall Holmes. What else could he have divulged save the Wilbock Farm affair? My nimble wit had led me to a jack-o'-lantern dance to nowhere. Why South Africa? he repeated. I replied with Machiavellian astuteness, so as to put him on a false scent. A stupid slander about illicit diamond buying in connection with a man, now dead, who used to live here some years ago. Oh, no, said Randall, with a superior smile. Nothing of that sort. Well, what is it? I asked. He helped himself to another cigarette. That, said he, I can tell you. In the first place, I gave my word of honor as to secrecy before he told me, and, in the next, 
even if i hadn't given my word i would not be a party to such a slander by repeating it to any living man he bent forward and looked me straight in the eyes even to you major who have been a second father to me a man said i has a priceless possession that he should always keep in his own counsel i've only told you as much as i have done said randall because i want to make clear to you my position with regard both to phyllis and her father may i ask said i what is phyllis's attitude towards her father i knew well enough from betty but i wanted to see how much randall knew about it she is so much out of sympathy with his opinions that she has gone to live at the hospital perhaps she thinks you share those opinions and for that reason won't marry you that may have something to do with it although i have done my best to convince her that i hold diametrically opposite views but you can't expect a woman to reason the unexpected sometimes happens i remarked and then comes catastrophe in this case not to the woman i cannot say that my tone was sympathetic i had cause of interest in his artless table but it was cold and dispassionate tell me i continued when did you discover the diabolical nature of the man gadge last night and when did you ask phyllis to marry you a week ago what's going to happen now i asked i'm hanged if i know said he gloomily i was in no mood to offer the young man any advice the poor little wretch at the hospital so betty had told me was crying her eyes out for him and it was not for his soul's good that he should know it in heroic days said i a hopeless lover always find a sovereign remedy against an obdurate mistress he rose and buttoned up his canvas jacket i know what you mean he said and i didn't come to discuss it if you'll excuse my apparent rudeness in saying so then things are as they were between us not quiet i hope he replied in a dignified way when last you spoke to me about phyllis gadge i really didn't know my own mind i am not a cad and the thought of of anything wrong never entered my head on the other hand marriage seemed out of the question i remember said i you talk some blithering rot about her being a symbol i am quite willing to confess i was a fool he admitted gracefully and i merited your strictures his revision to artificiality annoyed me. I am far from being of an angelic disposition. My dear boy, I cried, do for God's sake talk human English and not the new Oxford Dictionary. He flushed angrily, snapped an impatient finger and thumb, and marched away to the gravel path. I sang out sharply. Randall! He turned. I cried. Come here at once. He came with sullen reluctance. Afterwards I was rather tickled at realizing that the lame old war-dog had so much authority left. If he had gone defiantly off, I should have felt rather a fool. My dear boy, I said, I didn't mean to insult you. But can't a clever fellow like you understand that all the pretty frills and preciousness of a year ago are as dead as the last year's Brussels sprouts? We are up against elemental things, and can only get at them with elemental ideas expressed in elemental language. I'd have you to know, said Randall, 
that I spoke classical English. Quiet so, said I. But a man of today speaks Saxon English, Cockney English, Slang English, any damned sort of English that is virile and spontaneous. As I say, you are a clever fellow. Can't you see my point? Speech is an index of mental attitude. I bet you what you like Phyllis Gedge would see it at once. Just imagine a subaltern at the front after a bad quarter of an hour with his colonel. I've merited your strictures, sir. If there was a bomb handy, the colonel would catch it up and slay him on the spot. But I don't happen to be at the front, Major, said Randall. Then you damned well ought to be, said I in sudden breath. I couldn't help it. He asked for it. He got it. He went away, mounted his motor-bicycle, and rode off. I was sorry. The boy evidently was in a chastened mood. If I had handled him gently and diplomatically, I might have done something with him. I suppose I'm an irritable, nasty-tempered beast. It is easy to lay the blame on my helpless legs. It isn't my legs. I've conquered my damned legs. It isn't my legs. It's me. I was ashamed of myself, and when later Marigold inquired whether the doors were still shut against Mr. Holmes, I asked him what the blazes he meant by not minding his own business, and Marigold said, Very good, sir. End of chapter 8